So uh, the community of Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> the community of Christ the Reconciler is led by the Lord. There are four of us who seek to discern the Lord's leading and lead the community in accordance. Those are myself and my wife Amy, Philip, and Caroline Owens. So the four of us have been praying towards this moment for quite a while, and we have a strong sense that the Lord has prepared the teaching that Caroline is going to bring for us for just this moment. She has been germinating, nurturing this teaching for a year and a half. Yeah, a little more than a year. Yeah. So this is not anything new. This is something that's been on her heart. I guarantee you she's labored in prayer. Everything she's said to you, she's prayed countless times. So you can be confident, I think, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us that you've been brought here for this moment. But this is also true for those of you who are listening, who will, you know, who will re- see the recording of this or hear the recording of this, because my sense is this is a pivotal teaching for our community. We're exploring this year, what does it mean to take the next step into community? Unless we grasp what the Lord is saying through Caroline, we will not be able to take this step. I will tell you that with all my heart. We have to understand what Caroline is bringing. I also think this is a pivotal, timely message for the church in the United States and in the world today. So I'm really looking forward to hearing Caroline, and let's welcome her as she comes and brings the word of the Lord. Sunday school teacher at um, Dunwoody Baptist Church in Dunwoody, Georgia. 1977, so you can age me right now. Um, I'm, I'm forever in his debt because he loved having us memorize scripture. And one scripture he had us memorize is especially precious to me, and I don't even remember his name, but this is something he deposited in my, in my heart. I've prayed it probably thousands of times in my life, and I want to open what I have to say today with with that as a prayer. And I would ask you to pray for me and pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So today I'm going to talk about the accuser of the brethren. Not a light topic. Should I stand to the side? No, you're good. Okay. Stand right behind me. So we're going to talk about who he is and what is his role. He is the great dragon, that ancient serpent, Satan. Now the name Satan itself means accuser or adversary. His nature is to constantly accuse us. The devil is no friend of humanity, and yet, when we look at the world, we can see his influence everywhere. The saddest place to see him working is in the church, and this is far too often how this grieves the heart of God. 
So as we begin to talk about the accuser of the brethren, we need to point out some of his uh, identifying characteristics and the way he works among us. The number one characteristic of the accuser is pride. And this is, this is the accuser talking. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the height of arrogance. This is insanity. It is madness. And yet, from the very beginning, he wants us to join him. Let's look at the accuser in the Garden of Eden since the beginning. Genesis 3, 1, 4, and 5. This is, again, the devil talking. (coughs) Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. From the beginning of the human race, the accuser is accusing God. God is not being good to you. He is holding out on you. Therefore, you can decide right and wrong for yourself. Do you see that justification? You decide. You be the judge. I have ascended, and so can you. Folks, that's how the devil got his gig. The deception that Satan has been trying to sell us from the very beginning is this. We can be like God if we disobey him. But we are in a danger zone if we begin to question the accuracy or the appropriateness of God's commands applied to our everyday lives. I don't think that many of us would have the chutzpah to just outright rewrite God's laws, but sometimes we feel all too comfortable playing around with interpretation in our daily situation. This is important. God's commandments are never ideas on a page, some kind of philosophical ideals. They are only valid in our lives as insofar as they are applied to our everyday lives. Yes. Disobeying what he tells us does not make us better. It drives a wedge in our relationship with the Lord. But the thought often is, We can be like God, not if we trust in his judgments, but if we set ourselves up as judge. Now, contrast that attitude of the devil with this attitude in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Why are we repeatedly exhorted in Scripture to be humble? Because as it was in the Garden of Eden, there is an accuser who is daily pushing us in the opposite direction. Paul urges us as believers to consider that Jesus had equality with God. He was God. He is God. But he did not consider this equality something to be grasped. I love what Father Raniero Consolamesa in Sober Intoxication of the Spirit says about how that passage relates to us. It's a great book if you ever have a chance to read it. He says, When Jesus descends, he does so from a real and objective height because he is the Holy One of God. When it is we who descend, we lower ourselves from a false or pseudo-height, a height to which we were unlawfully elevated by pride, vanity, anger, and so forth. The base instinct in us to elevate ourselves above our neighbors. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11, and 12, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus was and is the greatest among us, and he was and is a servant to us. He serves us, even now. He considered others better than himself. Therefore, he was exalted. Now, if we are followers of Jesus, the path for us to follow the Master is clear. What does Jesus do? He humbles himself, therefore he's exalted. What does Satan do? He exalts himself, he refuses to be a servant of God or anyone else. He considers himself better than others, and therefore he is cast down. Now I ask you, whose kickball team do you want to be on? <laughs> Our typical definition of humility is fairly defective. We tend to think that humility is feeling bad about ourselves. <laughs> this is not the case. St. Teresa of Avila, one of my favorites, says, God is sovereign truth, and to be humble is to walk in truth. So simply put, the definition of humility is agreement with the truth. Once you give in to pride, you compromise the truth, and you are made susceptible to lies. Which is the next identifying characteristic of the accuser, is lies. The accuser says that we can be like God, that we can replace Jesus as judge. I tell you what, if he can sell us that piece of real estate, people, 
He can sell us anything. He is a smooth-talking, used-sin salesman. (laughs) It is the same old shtick, people. He doesn't have to come up with anything new. If I can believe that I I can replace Jesus as judge, I'll believe anything. Now, when the accuser whispers things in our ears, do you think he's telling the truth? John 8.44 says that when the devil lies, he speaks his native language. His native language. No accent at all. It sounds so good. His accusations, his lies, may have some semblance to the truth, but it will always be infused with falsehood. The devil loves to play hair-splitting word games with us. He did this with Eve. You have smooth-sounding lies, you mix some pride in with it, and then suddenly everything becomes plausible. This is the path of deception. And the devil does not come in with a banner that says, Hello, I'm the devil, and I am here to kill you. He lies about his identity, but we can know who he is. The Holy Spirit is faithful to give discernment if we listen. Scripture is full of warnings about him and how he operates. We have to be attentive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Scripture says this in 1 Peter. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. That's pretty graphic. He is a lion. He wants to kill us. He literally wants to kill us. There are no two ways about it, folks. The third identifying characteristic of the accuser of the brethren is division. The devil has craved division since the dawn of creation. The Father and the Son are eternally united. And the early church fathers said that the love that unites them is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the personification of love, the embodiment of love. The nature of the kingdom is the unity born out of the oneness of the Trinity. By contrast, the nature of the kingdom of darkness is division. Kingdom divided itself cannot stand, as Jesus said. It is impossible for the, ho- for the forces of hell to unite because unity is born out of love. Again, the devil seeks to separate. What happens when an animal gets separated from the herd? It's more vulnerable to attack from predators. When we are divided, Satan, the lion who seeks to destroy us, is more, ably, a- more easily able to kill us kill our faith. And here's an example of the nature of this this division. I I see this. I hear this. I still believe in Jesus. I just can't go to church anymore. I am sick to death of, and here you insert some perceived negative aspect of the church. I want to look at that for a minute. I want to be sober. I want to look at this soberly for a minute. Look at the mentality around that. In this, We've already ascended above our brothers and sisters. We're already on a higher spiritual plane. We are separated 
divided. And I've also often seen that when people start out from this point, they leave the faith entirely, eventually. Jesus' final prayer was that we be one. Folks, this is our heads up for what the enemy most seeks to attack, unity. Let's look at what Galatians 5 says. The acts of the flesh... I'm sorry. Oh, do we have uh, verses 19 through 21? There we go. There we go. Yay, the acts of the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when I think of the sinful nature, I think of kind of some of the seedier elements, kind of the sleazier stuff in that list, you know, debauchery, um, you know, sexual immorality, all that kind of stuff. That's what comes to my mind when I think of the acts of the sinful nature. Oh, he's highlighted it. That's great. (laughs) But these, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, it's sandwiched in between all of that licentiousness. And those who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says. And then we go on to happier verses. (laughs) But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become... Conceited, there it is again, provoking and envying each other. If we claim Christ as Savior, we say we live by the Spirit, we must keep in step with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23, manifesting the law and love, are qualities that are all united, bringing the body of Christ together because they have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires and have not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Paul spells it out. It is conceit that causes us to provoke each other. Now, let's skip to the end. (laughs) This is the only comic relief in this entire talk that I've ever Skip to the end. We're, we're not, unfortunately, skipping to the end of my talk, but we are skipping to the end of human history. <laughs> so enjoy that for a second. Huh. Shout, shout out to all my Princess Bride fans. All right, <clears throat> let's look at Revelation chapter 11 and uh, also part of chapter 12. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. 
Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. My friends, this is an awesome scene. The Lord is getting ready to judge. The glory of God is revealed in his temple, his courtroom. And also note in the passage that the Ark of the Covenant is present. I believe this is a very important element. You see, the Lord, the God of heaven, the judge of all mankind, makes judgments based on his law. His judgments are not random or capricious. On the other hand, Satan does not seek to accuse or judge based on any law. In fact, he is the lawless one, the very spirit of lawlessness. His judgments are based on a whim. His truth is based on lies. If we look at this passage in Revelation again, we can see the accuser's ultimate end. The first thing that must happen before the kingdom of God can be made fully manifest in the universe is that the accuser must be cast down. Only then will come the full judging authority of Christ. This is not only true of human history, it is true in our hearts. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Something of the authority of Christ cannot be made fully manifest in our hearts as long as the accuser is resident there. And the degree to which the accuser is operating in our lives is the degree to which we shut the authority of Christ out. How do we overcome the accuser of the brethren? Verse 11 spells it out for us. The blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Now the way I have historically previously interpreted the scripture is that when the devil comes knocking at my door, I battle with the blood of the lamb. I plead the blood and I speak what God has been faithful to do in my own life. And this is very true. But one thing I'd never noticed before until I was preparing this talk is that the testimony in this passage is singular. It's not their testimonies. It's their testimony. Together, we are to have one testimony. This is the way the devil will be defeated. Our victory as individuals is tied to our victory as a people. 
We will not be able to fully overcome the accuser in our lives, in the world, in the church, unless we have a unified testimony. The reign of Christ cannot be made fully manifest until we have a unified testimony. The accuser opposes unity, and the body of Christ overcomes him by unity through the shed blood of Jesus. How radically would the world be changed if we, as the people of God, steeped in the blood of the Lamb, were to share one testimony of the saving power of Jesus together, united, one, as the Father and Son are one. It would blow the doors off the kingdom of darkness. Jesus prayed for us to be one so that the world would know who he is. Mm -hmm. So that salvation may come as we see in this passage. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Perhaps this is not just literal martyrdom, but also death to ourselves in our daily lives. Jesus asks us to come, take up our cross, and follow him. Jesus bids us die to ourselves. But do we love ourselves too much? Do we shrink from death to self? Or have we truly crucified our sinful nature, as Paul says in Galatians? If we are leaning into the Holy Spirit, if we are fully submitted to him, we will automatically align ourselves with the advocate. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. When we advocate for others, we are in agreement with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Intercessors, I'm talking to you. We are called to be little advocates in agreement with the divine advocate Mm -hmm. submitted to the authority of Christ. If we are to take a look at the battle going on in our day, in our culture, Many seem very interested in whose side God is on. But the question really is, whose side are we on? The accuser or the advocate? I tell you the truth. Our backbiting, our raging diatribes, our slander, our proliferation of half-truths about others on social media, blogs, and websites are a slap in the face to the crucified Christ. And they are a scandal to the message of the gospel. Do we realize that we are on a public stage demonstrating to the world that this is how Christians treat others and worse, how they treat each other? Amen. Jesus said this, and I personally shudder every time I read it. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted. By your words you will be condemned. I can sometimes be very well versed in the moral laws of what's right and wrong in other people's lives. Mm. But I am ashamed to say to you that I often miss the most important law of all, the law of love. Matthew 5.14, Jesus said this, 
for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the overarching law of God, the law of love. Here's a good working definition of love. Willing the good of the other. If someone is in sin, there are concrete, specific, biblical steps that can be taken to gently, lovingly bring that person to the truth. Jesus is the truth. We bring the person to Jesus in prayer and sometimes in person, and we let Jesus, the judge, handle it. Have I ever been wrong about anything? Anything at all? Don't answer that, Philip. Don't, don't answer that, honey. <laughs> then I've rendered a false judgment. And I am disqualified to be the judge because at some point I'll be wrong. When we place ourselves in the position of judge, James has something to say about it. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I'd say that's pretty clear. You're not just judging a a person. It becomes bigger than that. You are sitting in judgment of the law. You automatically come into opposition to God himself, the real lawgiver and judge. And my friends, that is terrifying. I want to take a few minutes to consider a passage from the Gospels. And I think this is a powerful passage for us today. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead and went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and he said, You do not know what spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now I want to give you some background for this passage. Jesus has set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem towards the city of God where he would endure his suffering. We know from John's gospel that some in Samaria some in Samaria had already heard Jesus and believed in him. However, now that Jesus is going to Jerusalem speaking openly of his death, they reject him. Perhaps the Samaritans feel Jesus' insistence on traveling to Jerusalem is a rebuke to their form of worship, and in a sense it is. The Samaritans worshipped apart from the temple, which was a practice forbidden by the law. Jesus didn't stop to worship with them because Jerusalem was the place his father had chosen for the temple and for his passion. Perhaps the Samaritans did not welcome Jesus simply because they wanted no part of suffering. In our day, 
there are people like the Samaritans who want to worship in their own way. They reinterpret scripture to make themselves more comfortable. Perhaps they fear persecution or rejection by the power holders of this world. Perhaps they simply find the lure of greed, sexual sin, or popularity too strong to resist. They are not willing to embrace Christ's call to the cross. In our decision to follow Christ as a church, we will experience suffering along the way. Following Jesus in this world will not win us any popularity contests. I can tell you that. The fact that many in the church are not willing to enter into his suffering is a great tragedy. Now, in this passage, James and John think that they will be doing Jesus' service, helping the cause, if they call fire down from heaven. They've determined what should happen to these evil people who have openly rejected Jesus. But does their attitude reflect the attitude of Jesus? What we are seeing right now in some members of the body of Christ is James and John's response. We're so willing to call fire down from heaven, to condemn to hell those who are so clearly off base. But Jesus said to James and John, and he says to those of us who would harbor such thoughts or words, you do not know what spirit you are of. And he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the accuser. What was wrong with Jesus' perception? Was he okay with their rejection of him? Of course there is sin. Of course there is wrongdoing. There would be no need for judgment if there were no wrongdoing. But the key to remember is that there's wrongdoing by all of us. All of us will face judgment at the end of time. The response to sin in the world or in the church is grief, not self-righteousness. It should be to take up the cross, to pray for mercy for them. Not to usurp the Lord's place as judge. On the cross, Jesus prayed for mercy. You do not want anyone to go to hell. Anyone. If you do, you don't know what spirit you are of. God wills that none be lost but that all come to salvation. Do not say, do not ever say, they will or should or deserve to burn in hell. No Christian should talk like that. Before you make that call, before you send that email, before you write that post, stop. Pause. The enemy wants us to knee-jerk. He does not want this spirit to have time to work, the time to move in our hearts. He wants to make us feel this sense of moral urgency. The Lord is not in that kind of hurry. Instead, he's patient with us. Consider the source of that emotional surge or that flash of anger that you feel. We need to ask ourselves this question, am I seeking to win a soul or am I seeking to simply win an argument? Being right or winning an argument does not in itself win souls to the kingdom. It doesn't. 
Do not exalt yourself, being elevated on the rightness of your moral stance. Remember that Jesus did not elevate himself. He descended to win souls. We should also descend to win souls. We should descend to our knees. Take 24 hours and pray for that person. Hey, add some kerosene to it and fast. Skip a meal in that 24 hours. The world will not end in that amount of time. So many things that are done in haste are regretted later on. Fasting and prayer. Listen, fasting and prayer will do so much more damage to the kingdom of darkness than any social media post will. Sorry, just... Amen. Yeah. Glory, glory. We need to remember what the first characteristic of love is in 1 Corinthians 13. is patience. And the root meaning of the word patience is suffering. It comes from the same word as passion, as in Christ's passion. Are we willing to be patient to suffer along with Christ for the sake of the lost? Or for the sake of the backslidden? Or the compromised? The stories of our day that most strike us as humans, I think not just Christians, but as non-Christians even more so, are the stories of people who have a right to accuse, a right to be angry, a right to be filled with hatred, and yet they turn the whole thing on its ear and choose love instead. And now as a family, we just recently read The Hiding Place. I don't know how many of you have read it. Um, I'm 53. It took me that long to read it. <laughs> I cannot recommend it enough. But I think most of us, whether you've read it or not, know the general story. The Ten Booms were a Dutch family who hid Jews and others during the Nazi occupation of World War II. They were eventually betrayed, discovered by the SS, and arrested. Sisters Corey and Betsy Ten Boom ended up at the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp. Both were faithful servants of God in the most brutal of conditions under the most cruel and sadistic of overseers. What struck me most deeply about their time there was Betsy's heart posture towards her oppressors. Once when witnessing the ruthless beating of a mentally challenged prisoner, Betsy commented to Corey, I pray every day that we will be allowed to show them that love is greater. She had a deep, deep compassion on the Nazis and greatly desired to show them the love of God. And even more amazingly, this about the person who actually betrayed them to the SS. His name was Jan Vogel. Corey said, Betsy, don't you feel anything about Jan Vogel? Doesn't it bother you? And Betsy said this, Oh yes, Corey, terribly. I've felt for him ever since I knew, and I pray for him whenever his name comes into my mind, how dreadfully he must be suffering. Wow! Was she a nut? Was she a fool? What a spiritual doormat! How 
could she be that blind to the evil practices of that government? Listen carefully. Was she unaware of the diabolical political system under which she and millions like her were suffering? The answer is no, she wasn't. However, she saw them not as demon-possessed, soulless automatons, but as individuals, sinners in desperate need of the mercy of God. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me share with you something as a point of confession. Every, every night we read from that book, and I heard about Betsy's behavior, I went to bed perplexed. And this was alien, you know. I could not wrap my mind around that kind of compassion, that kind of humility. I am not wired that way. It seemed completely otherworldly to me. And it even seemed otherworldly to her sister Corey at first. And here's an insight for us. It is otherworldly. <laughs> Do you know why Jesus prayed for our unity? So that the world would know that he was sent from the Father? Why visible, tangible unity will bear the good news of Jesus Christ better, better than any efforts on our parts? It is because unity is not of this world. Unity will attract attention because division is the order of the day. Humility will attract attention because pride is the order of the day. Who could give Betsy Ten Boom such power to love? Who could give me such power to love? Who could give the church such power to love? Only one, my friends. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, we need an advocate. I want to close with this. I am begging you, as one who struggles in the arenas of anger and pride, I am begging you, as your sister in Christ, to consider, along with me, our personal level of cooperation with the accuser to consider his schemes to kill us. I plead with you to consider on the great and terrible day of the Lord that we will be judged, but not on our personal moral rectitude. Friends, we have no holiness to offer him that he has not given us. We will be judged on our love.